So with that, we'll uh, get started with Isaiah chapter 1. Now, I must admit, and Daddy's alluded to this before, but I'll just say it again. Uh, I've certainly never taught Isaiah. Uh, I can't say that I've read the whole thing uh, up until this point, so this will be good for me. Anytime you start a new section uh, of Scripture, uh, it kind of takes a while to kind of attune your ears to what's being said, you know, and uh, we've just finished up a chunk of very familiar scripture working through uh, Paul's letters, which are extensively taught in most evangelical churches, um, and so very familiar. Um, you'll probably remember when we went through uh, Joshua, uh, a little bit different uh, concepts, more big picture concepts, and um, we worked in a lot of geography and history and all that sort of stuff, so it just takes a while to kind of get your ears attuned to uh, a different type of writing. So um, Isaiah, as you know, is a, a book of prophecy. Um, prophecy uh, can mean future stuff, but it can also mean um, kind of a, 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 a word from God about what's happening right now. Uh, uh, divine judgment, you might think. Uh, here is where you are, people, and God, you know, you know, brings himself down uh, into a connection with his people periodically through uh, history. And this is one of those times where he chose Isaiah to, to speak his words to the people, a message that they needed to hear. Uh, so when you think about Book of Prophecy, um, there can be a, a here and now application, and then uh, the way the Bible is written and the God and his providence, um, there's application um, for the people that are hearing it and also for those of us that will read it you know, 3,000 years later. So, um, one other comment to make about this particular chapter, uh, or about the organization of Isaiah, um, and, Daddy, I meant to compare notes with you because I haven't listened to your first introductory week either, but um, there is a little bit of interest uh, and, and perhaps uh, collegial disagreement with a lot of the commentators about how Isaiah is written and how it's organized. Um, almost everybody agrees that the first 39 or so chapters were written by Isaiah. Uh, many conservative scholars believe that the whole thing was written by Isaiah uh, with just differences in uh, tone and language just because that was the way God intended. Some people feel that um, perhaps other prophets writing in the style of Isaiah perhaps wrote the latter parts, because it, it appears that that uh, language is specifically directed toward uh, the people of Israel while they were in exile. Um, so there's that big, uh, a little bit of a uh, uh, difference of interpretation there. The other thing that's kind of interesting is that some people believe that, that uh, parts of Isaiah start, or that perhaps Isaiah started with chapter 6. Uh, when we get to chapter 6, there'll be a famous passage. This is where Isaiah describes his call, uh, where he talks about in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, you know, how he was called specially into that ministry, and believe that either Isaiah or perhaps some other editor put in the first five chapters kind of as an introduction to everything else, um, as a, a foretaste uh, uh, of what's going to come. If you've ever been to the theater you know that 
before the curtains open, the orchestra cranks up, right? And they play this long section. What do they call that? The overture. And it often includes samples of all the songs you're going to hear in the whole musical, often. Um, and, uh, but you hear it's all woven together. So in a way, the first five chapters you might think of as an overture to Isaiah, where we're going to get some big themes. And even within, I have totally decided if I, if I buy that, but it's instructive for the sake of, of today that in even a smaller way, a lot of what happens in chapter 1 in terms of those big themes um, are reflected the whole rest of the book. And so I'll comment on that as we go along. God is an orderly God. So it doesn't surprise me at all that we have this kind of organization. It's really kind of cool if you think about it. All right, verse 1. Uh, did I say page 487 in the books that uh, are the, the versions that uh, your paperback? The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Here's this little bit of history. We've talked about the kings that Isaiah served, and you see them listed here. Uh, and then it says who Isaiah was, the son of Amos. Um, there's speculation about who Isaiah really was, and a lot of people think that he might have been part of some royal family uh, because he seemed to have lots of access to these uh, kings, and uh, you've already heard uh, some of that. So as we go through, and we probably won't do this very often, but in this particular chapter, we're gonna, I'm going to kind of go through the verses and um, kind of paraphrase maybe a little bit, uh, again, to help kind of get your ear tuned a little bit to uh, how uh, Isaiah the prophet is speaking. Uh, verse 2, he just jumps right on in. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. So he says, I've got this word I'm going to give you, people. Um, and by the way, I'm not sure you're going to hear it, so I'm going to call these inanimate objects, the earth and the stars, I just want you to witness what's going on here as I tell these people, because I'm not even sure they're going to get it. Because even these dumb farm animals, known for their dumbness, right? Even a little bit. But I'm not smart because they have totally forgotten who I am to them. Verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Uh, they have, all the way to Galatians, they have left their first love. They have turned their backs on God. A lot of things going on. There's a lot of history um, that kind of feeds into that. A lot of the interaction with pagan peoples that were encroaching upon them. Uh, a lot is, is in that, but from a spiritual standpoint, they have turned their backs on 
the God of Israel. And verse 5 picks up, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. Here we have um, the announcement, and then he, with the little preamble, like, you idiots, you're not going to probably understand this, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. And he said, here is the analysis. You've turned away from me. And then we get, in verse 5, this extended diagnosis where he basically says, let me break it down for you. You don't even know how bad it is, so I'm going to give you some examples of how bad you really are, how sick you really are, and he uses medical language here. The whole head is sick, this is the latter part of verse 5, and the whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds not pressed or bandaged, nor softened with oil. I won't get too graphic, but if you're seeing a bad wound, um, it's crusty. It's yucky. There's dry things there. And so this, you know, it hasn't been bandaged, it hasn't been softened up with oil. You're in a bad way. This person, this spiritual illness there is not good. This is your condition. Not a, not a lot to salvage here is is the uh, the picture, and it, it kind of conjures the you know the picture of the goodsman, the 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 guy that was left by the roadside, just all beat up and needed treatment. More diagnosis here, this time from uh, an, an an agricultural example. Let me tell you just how bad things are. Verse seven: Your land is desolate; your cities are burned with fire; your fields. Strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. Like the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field. That one cracked me up. You know, I'm guessing cucumbers were probably not that much of a valued crop. I mean, like nowadays, I mean, you know, I guess... The Mount Olive Pickle Company does just fine by their cucumbers, but most everybody else just, if you're going to grow something, that's not a bad thing to grow. It pretty much grows anywhere. Do you really need to build a fancy hut to have somebody guard your cucumber field? You know, but even, even that is, you know, that's just how bad things are. You're, you're no better than just this shelter that's been left abandoned that was there just to, just to watch over your cucumbers. Verse 9, Lest the Lord of hosts has, had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. It's like, you know, you know, if God had not been merciful, he would have snatched us up just like he did Sodom Gomorrah. And he carries that thing to verse 10, he says, I might as well speak to you like that. Okay, you rulers of Sodom, give your ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So here we have a transition where it says, you know, you're in a horrible state. But you know what's even worse? You think you're fine. You think you're doing all the right stuff. You're doing your sacrifices, you're going to church, you're making all the meetings. 
I could care less about your meetings. I could care less about your sacrifices. In fact, it's like revolting to me because you think that actually means something. Verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, said the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats. Now, bear in mind, this was all God's idea, the bulls and rams and goats. But he's like, you know, I just had it with that. Because it doesn't mean anything. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense just stinks. Incense is an abomination to me. That was a paraphrase, sorry. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of the assemblies, all this church calendar stuff is really toss calendar to me. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Verse 14, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Verse 16 and 17, he says, you know, here's, here's what I'm looking for. I find it interesting that the 16 and 17 is really short. Right? Take them 15 verses, 14 if you take a reverse, to convince us just how bad things are and how bad we are and how stupid we are for thinking we're all that. And he says, you know, this is not that complicated, people. Here's the deal. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Those last couple phrases, does that sound a little familiar? There's a a famous verse echoes that. Do you know what, where that comes from? Or where that, why that sounds familiar? In James. Is that Linda? Ms. Velta? James says, because if you think about it, he's telling them the same stuff, right? He talks about being double-minded and unstable in their ways. And he says, you guys know what true religion is? taking care of widows and orphans, right? Selfless stuff, looking out for other people, not just for yourself. So that's what God's saying here. You know, it's just not that complicated. <laughs> Sometimes we make things really hard. I, I, you know, I guess the longer, maybe, I don't know, Jim, if you did this, but the longer I'm in practice, I care less about what I say. But I, I, in, in some ways, let me clarify I had this one gal, she was like maybe 22 and not really even that old emotionally, and 
I had seen her, you know, I guess since she was a kid. So I had a pretty good rapport with her. And she was dating some guy, and this was a different guy than the guy she had been dating the last time. And they were just a string of losers. And I, I, I said, look, I said, let me, let me give you like three rules. I said, does he love you? Does he love Jesus? Does he have a job? I said, that is a really good start. You know, does he love you? Does he love Jesus? Does he have a job? I was kind of joking. The funny part was funny, sad. She said, wow, I need to write that down. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of get the idea that God's saying, you know, this is not that difficult, people. Look at this. Verse 18 starts a passage that uh, I guess the people that really know the, the Hebrew and the language um, sounds like legal terms, court terms, judicial terms. This is where God, who is right to be judge and jury and prosecutor and all of that, says, all right, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The judge is laying out the terms. If you just get right with me, I can make all this go away. I can make your sins go from red to white. I can do that. We can be together. We, we can have that fellowship again. This same fellowship that he's been wanting ever since Adam and Eve walked unashamedly in God's presence. That's, that's what God has been wanting all through history. And here again he's saying, you know, you know, let, let's be reasonable. Let's think about this. And he's laying it out, laying out the terms. You can get right and things are great with me. Verse 20 starts with the word, but, but, if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. This will not go well for you. <coughs> Let's talk about how things are and how things will not go well. Verse 21. How the faithful city, she who was full of justice and righteousness once lodged in her, but now there's murderers. You know, here's what I was hoping for. Here's what I had at one time. I had a faithful city. And now I've got an unfaithful city. I've become a harlot. This prostitution language will show up in several places throughout prophecy. Of course, the most famous is probably if you've read the book of Hosea.
I had righteousness, and now they're murderers. Verse 22, there was silver has become dross. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everybody loves a bribe. They don't defend the orphan. They don't defend, or they, uh, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Um, now, verse 24. You know, when we talk about the Bible, we say that it is revelation. It is God revealing himself to us. Aside from the Bible, all we would know is what we could work out about God in creation. Romans 1 talks about that. You'll remember that there is some evidence. There's some echo of God's hand just with creation. But other than that, everything we know about God is because he told us about himself. Verse 24, he's going to tell us about himself. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, uh, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie. And Verse 26, Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness, but transgressors and sinners will be crushed. And those who forsake, I will not suffer the status quo. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to handle this because this is who I am. I will avenge those who have transgressed against me. This matters to me. Verse 29 and following. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades awake, or a garden who has no water. And the strong man will become tender, his work also a spark. They shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. There's a little discussion about what this garden and fist kind of language is. Um, some people think it refers to, there were actually uh, some, uh, when there were places of idol worship, we've talked about the high, and you know that some in some places, these symbols, which were kind of phallic symbols to the idols, well, apparently, they also plant groves of trees. Some people even believe that uh, some sort of divinity has actually uh, dwelt in these evergreen trees. This is not that far from the modern-day Wiccan witch kind of stuff. It's all about literally worshiping nature as if nature has God in it in a in a weird way, in a, a pagan way. Anyway, some people say, you know, you planted all these gardens and, you know, you've kind of taken some pride in that. Maybe you've gone there, you think there's something of value there, but, but you're going to be ashamed of that. You're going to be embarrassed of that activity. And, in fact, that's going to, that's going to burn. This effort is not going to work. So, he gets off to a nice little pleasant start there, right? 
All right. Kind of through this, and I don't, I don't really know Daddy and I, of course, all this from different ways, but I think one of the things that I'm going to try to do for myself and, and, and something that we can do together, hopefully, is that we go through to ask two questions. First of all, what can I learn about man from this passage? And then secondly, what can I learn about God from this passage? I think two questions are really good questions really anytime you're looking at Scripture. What does this tell me about man in general? And then what does that tell me about man specifically? What does it tell about me and my tendencies, my weaknesses, my sin? And then what does this tell me about God? So as you do your reading, you can cheat. You can read ahead and start asking yourself that as you read through each chapter. Since you haven't had time to think about that, I'm going to give you my shot on this. Um, one, uh, one thing I'll, I'll make this point is um, the reason that we worship God matters. Right? The reason we do things matters. Um, you know, good intentions are just good intentions uh, without some action. And I'm, that's one of my weak spots. But kind of the reverse of that is equally bad. Doing sometimes even the right thing with the wrong intention or without any good intention at all, that's wrong too. And that's a lot of what that center section I read where it's, you know, it matters why you're doing all of this. All right, so what do we learn about man? I think one thing we learn is that we see, but and, of course, we have the Holy Spirit, which, you know, gives us uh, a, uh, a fighting chance, you might say. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. You'll see what I mean. But aside from the Holy Spirit, or listening to the Holy Spirit, we sin, but we typically don't self-correct. Right? We don't self-correct. We sin. So what does God do? Helps us with that. All right? So we sin, and in the middle of that sin, <clears throat> we're fine with it. All right? Something else about man. <clears throat> we need an outside agent to highlight that there is a problem. And we're usually not even convinced by that, so we very often need this outside to bring along a yardstick of some sort and show us just how bad the problem is. Because what do you do? Even if we kind of acknowledge, okay, well, yeah, I might do that, we tend to, we tend to try to modify the severity of whatever it is we're done, right? Uh, I, I think I was only going like 58 
You know, I know it couldn't have been, maybe 59. But 73? I, well, you know, I've got this yard. See, you know, we, we, we need not only some our problem, but we need somebody to tell us just how bad the problem is because our natural tendency is to mitigate that somehow, generalize it, make it less bad than it really is. I, I think that's as true today as it was 2,800 years ago. What do we learn about God from this passage? Well, God has laws, and they matter to him. He thinks a lot of his rules. Why? Because they are a reflection of who you reject my rules, you're rejecting me. I think any parent can relate to this. You did what? And at that point, you're less concerned about the rule than you are about the personal disconnect that's happened, right? That's, that's God. He really cares about what is right and wrong. It matters to him because it's part of who it is. he is. Here's the cool part. That out agent that we need to come to our senses, God's willing to do that for us. God's willing to be that outside agent. Whether it's Isaiah the prophet or Jesus the God-man who came and God's willing to be that outside agent to come and show us what happens. And then what I learned about God? God ultimately cares for us so much, He has no problem spanking us. He has no problem jerking us and getting our attention in whatever way it needs to happen. I don't know how this gets applied really on a, on a personal level. I think some people have harder hearts than others, and God has to jerk their chain a little harder. And some people have softer hearts, and the Holy Spirit can speak to them, and they're not self-correcting, but they're convicted by the Holy Spirit and can be corrected. Isaiah's talking to a whole nation. I'm sure as we go through this teaching, we're going to find applications for how this might speak to us as a nation. Um, But he cares enough for us that he is not going to let things continue in a way that's contrary to how he wants things to go. He will intervene. And then one final thought. There's a tricky thing to ritual and ceremony. And I think probably every religious institution that claims to worship the true God struggles at various points in time with how this goes. Why did God set up all of the ritual that's in the Pentateuch? The Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Why did he set all that up? Why did he say wash yourselves. Why do you say 
butcher these animals? Why did he say, come one person is cleansed and can come to the Holy Host? Why did he do all that? Well, it was to talk about sin, to talk about holiness, to talk about the consequences of sin, to foreshadow his son on the cross. Right? So, rightly done, that ritual that really began in Egypt, of course, rightly done, if that priest was making that sacrifice and knowing that, that this was connecting with the God that had brought them, I'm doing this for the right reason, then that's, that's the way it was intended. But it can get so corrupted, and if you lose that connection between the ritual and the ceremony and what it was designed to be connected to, it becomes worse than just to God, if you read this. It's like, you know, it just, it's revolting to me. I think, you know, we're coming up on a time of year that has a lot of tradition, a lot of ritual, a lot of ceremony, both in our homes and in our churches. I think this is a perfect time to say, why are we doing this? What's, you know, am I really, where's my heart in this? Right? Um, I think it's always a question. Um, as I was working through this, here's kind of how I put this. There's a tricky thing with ritual and ceremony. They are powerful tools to connect us with deep, but when we lose the connection to the deeper meaning, the ritual and ceremony become part of the problem. Instead of pointing to the deeper meaning, in this case, God's desire that we walk in fellowship with Him and keep a clean slate regarding sin with Him, we come to act that the and believe that the ritual and the ceremony in and of itself serve to somehow make you better or worthy. By the time that Jesus, once again, the ritual and the letter of the law, remember this remark, had become separated from the spirit of the law. So he did away with the ceremony so that the question was no longer, what can I do to be good enough for God's favor? But the question became, what do I think about Jesus? And that's what God, through Isaiah, was saying as well. You're going through the of the sacrifice, but you've forgotten about me. Do you remember? Do you care about what I want? And ultimately, you know, when, when we're presented with this Offer, come now. Let's reason together. Here's my deal for you. It's all about, are you going to align yourself with God, or are you going to turn your back on His offer? It was true then. All right, I got it. We got time for some questions, comments. Hearing none, let's pray. And we'll be caring enough about us to 
interject yourself in our lives to tell you are about what you want, about how you care for it, what you're willing to do about it. I pray that for us, through the Holy Spirit, that you would nudge us along and that you'd give us sensitive hearts to hear right with you and that you would give us sensitive ears to hear what's going on around us in the hustle and bustle of this day and this season um, to really analyze what we're doing and why are we doing it. Father, we thank you for Jesus that you gave us to connect us in a way otherwise never could have happened that you could bring us to yourself. In his name I pray, amen.